continuing in the book of Hosea this morning, chapter 5, uh, is where we'll be concentrating our thoughts this morning. I did share uh, on Wednesday evening, uh, really chapter 4, God's controversy, uh, my heading says, that's not part of the inspired word, but uh, the author's note. Uh, I kind of framed that as though it was a summary of God's indictment of his people Israel. Uh, when I say Israel, most of you know, but just to clarify, uh, when you hear the words Ephraim and Israel, they're kind of used interchangeably here <coughs> for the, to represent the ten tribes of the north. Um, there was a southern kingdom, which is often referred to as Judah here. Uh, this book primarily is directed towards Ephraim, uh, Israel, uh, although Judah is not excluded. Uh, there are warnings. It seems as though in many ways Judah was on, in some ways on the same trajectory, uh, particularly uh, difficult and tempting was whenever things were prosperous and the nation was advancing and people were successful, successful their vineyards producing, uh, their crops uh, coming in, their herds growing. Uh, it just seems like there's something in regards to the nature of fallen men where uh, in times of prosperity and general comfort, we are just inclined. Uh, we are just compelled by our flesh to lean away from God and lean upon our own strength and our own understanding and just settle in uh, to life as it is. Uh, we know from history that it doesn't remain that way long. In fact, I made the case from chapter 4 on Wednesday night that the farther apart, the farther we depart from God, the more the, more the consequences begin to pile up until it drives us uh, to this point of misery. And in chapter 5, uh, God rebukes really the apostasy of Israel. Uh, I was thinking as I was standing in the back, uh, for some of us we may think, well, why do we read this? Uh, why Hosea? Why the minor prophets? They're almost so exclusively directed towards Israel, God's people, sometimes Judah, sometimes Ephraim. Uh, they're so historical why do we Gentiles uh, here in America in 2024 need to read this? And I couldn't help but think in my mind of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 10 where he says this, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. In this phrase, now these things happened to them as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil as they also craved do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play, nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day, nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. And particularly this verse, now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages have come. That's why we read these books. Uh, 
What God did in the history of Israel has implications and application to us upon whom the end of the ages have come. And those age, the end the ages began with the coming and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have been in the last days since then. You and I are living in the last days. And so these truths are relevant to that. So let's read chapter 5 together, just 15 verses and I want to share with you about, uh, try to do this briefly, if one message, maybe in two, but really about eight observations from this chapter that I think are really sobering and applicable to us. He begins, hear this, O priests, give heed, O house of Israel. Listen, O house of the king, for the judgment applies to you. For you have been a snare at Mizpah and a net spread out on Tabor. The revolters have gone deep in depravity, but I will chastise all of them. I know Ephraim and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the harlot. Israel has defiled itself. Their deeds will not allow them to return to their God, for a spirit of harlotry is within them and they do not know the Lord. Moreover, the pride of Israel testifies against him. And Israel and Ephraim stumble in their iniquity. Judah also has stumbled with them. They will go with their flocks and herds to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. They have dealt treacherously against the Lord, for they have borne illegitimate children. Now the new moon will devour them and their land. Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Sound an alarm at beth Aben. Behind you, Benjamin. Ephraim will become a desolation in the day of rebuke. Among the tribes of Israel, I declare what is sure. The princes of Judah have become like those who move a boundary. On them, I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment because he was determined to follow man's command. Therefore, I am like a moth to Ephraim, and for like rottenness to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to King Jerob. But he is unable to heal you or to cure you of your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear to pieces and go away. I will carry away and there will be none to deliver. I will go away and return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. Father, we thank you for your words. Father, as frightening as it is even to read these words and thinking of the historical context, Father, all the more frightening is it to me that when I look at our world today and our nation particularly, we are guilty of many of the very same things that Israel was guilty of then. Sins that brought severe judgment and even captivity to, their, to the southern, to the northern kingdom, Father, and, and even eventually later to the southern kingdom as well, to Babylon. And so, Father, I pray that by your grace you may open our eyes this morning. Father, as believers, we ought not leave this morning without understanding that we ought to be earnestly in prayer for our nation and for our world and even for Israel. And Father, I pray 
that as individuals we might understand that the pattern we see in the life of Israel can be a pattern that's repeated in our individual lives, our lives as the church, and even our lives as, as citizens of this nation. How prone we are, it seems, to drift from you and to begin to presume things about tomorrow and about our success and our prosperity and our comfort and how quickly these things can be removed in a moment, even in a twinkling of an eye with some catastrophe, whether natural disaster or enemies coming upon us. Father, I was reminded in studying of the morning that I witnessed on television the Twin Towers being bombed and as they collapsed and the thousands of lives were immediately in a moment snuffed out and how sobering it was to realize that we could go from a sunshiny morning and the world going along as usual to such an abrupt event and so Father it was a reminder then and it's a reminder again and a call for us to turn away from the things that we are trusting in and to turn to you. So help us this morning. We ask in Jesus' name for his sake and glory. Amen. A really sobering passage, and I'm so thankful that Hosea, by God's inspiration, gave us chapter 3 to reassure us with that portrait of redemption. God is bringing about that redemption. And even after this verse or this chapter in chapter 6, it talks about uh, how God will restore them. And throughout the book, it doesn't leave them completely without hope. But I think the message for Israel and Judah and for all the Gentiles who would come uh, later to know Christ is that redemption, restoration, healing is only to be found in Christ for Jew and Gentile. There's no doubt that God has a special place for his people Israel. And as I shared on Sunday night and, uh, and on Wednesday night and on the other messages, I think they were to be the instrument by which God would bless the nations through Abraham and the promise to Abraham. So they have a very special role in God's plan, but they are redeemed by the same means as you and I are today. Every Jew who comes to be, comes to in relationship with God will come through Christ. It'll be redemption is in Jesus Christ. And that was the message for Israel throughout its history. And that's the message to the Gentiles when the gospel was open to them. First and foremost, in this passage, I just want to pause at the first couple of verses and notice the call here. He says, priest and house of Israel and the king. I think that signifies the whole of the nation. He's not just talking to the priest, although he does focus on them at points. He's not talking to the people exclusive of kings and princes and priests. He's talking to the king himself directly at times, and, but overall it's to the nation. It's made up of the princes and the priest and the king. It, it, it's the whole nation. It, it's Israel who is going to suffer. And even at the time of Hosea's prophecy, that had not yet kicked in. The, the judgment of not God had not yet come fully upon them. So it's really, it's really all the more striking to think that they were in relative prosperity. In some cases, under Jeroboam II, they expanded the kingdom almost to the borders of Solomon's kingdom. So it would be hard for them to conceive judgment. What do you mean judgment? We're in the time of our lives. This is the prime of Israel. 
And yet we have this prophet taking to himself a prostitute and emblematic of their adultery against their God and and these severe prophecies. It must have been (coughs) inconceivable for them to think the judgment could possibly come. Maybe the prophet's exaggerating. Maybe he's not. The call here, the judgment, he says, applies to the whole. He says, therefore, the judgment applies to you. For you have been a snare and men's fun as a net spread on Tabor. I think there's a reference there to the heights where they would actually hunt and go spread their nets. And, and he's essentially saying that the hunters would overtake their prey on the mountains by spreading their nets. And he says, that's what you become. That's what you become. All of you, prophet or priest, king and people alike, you have become a snare and a, and a fowler's net. You have brought yourself into this captivity. Notice as well that he gives three exhortations there, really. He says, hear, in the first phrase, give heed, in the second, and in the third, listen. One one of the authors I was reading this week uh, saw an indication there of at least some mercy. Uh, Some mercy still available here. There's judgment coming. It's going to be severe, but God honors his covenant And he will indeed bless the nations through his covenant with Abraham and going all the way back to the garden, the covenant of the seed who would come to crush the serpent's head. He will honor his covenant. So there is still mercy available, not upon the works of Israel, but upon the covenant of God himself, upon his promises. So the the exhortations to hear Israel, heed this word, listen Take into consideration what you're about to hear because it might be the only glimpse of mercy available to you because what he's about to say is severe. It is severe. And just as it probably turned many off in Israel, I think this kind of message turns many off in America today. We want to hear about a loving God and a a gracious and a tolerant God, but we don't want to hear about a righteous and holy God whose word means something. And all those who depart from that God are bringing upon themselves the very wrath that is accompanying that righteous and holy and just God. That's not a popular message in our day, and this was not a popular message in Israel's day. No one wanted to hear this. In verse 3, it's interesting to me, but the, but the witness himself here is God. Because he says in verse 3, I know Ephraim, and Israel's not hidden from me. So this is a hear, listen, take heed, because the God who is omniscient and witness of all of your sin and all of your depravity is bringing now to bear upon you the judgment for your sin. So listen, this is not the court of men. This is not the general moral compass. This is not not the trend of the day. This is not the, the opinion of the religious elite or the political elite or the military might. This is the this is the evaluation of an omniscient God who knows not only your actions, but what's at heart motivating those actions. Listen, the same God is this morning sitting in evaluation of your and my heart. And all the actions that flow from such a heart as that. We are not hidden from Him. 
Nothing is hidden from Him. Your deepest, darkest, most intimate, shameful, sinful thought is readily observable and recognizable to the God with whom we have to do. That's the message to Israel. And God has not changed. And unfortunately, fallen men have not changed either, whether they call themselves Israelites or whether they call themselves Gentiles. We are all partakers of this fallen nature that is so obviously open and observable to our Creator. So you notice in verse 2 here, I'm drawing this first observation from verse 4, however. He says there, their deeds, their deeds will not allow them to return to their God. If you look in these verses, you'll see some of those deeds. In verse 2, he says there they had gone deeply into depravity. They are a depraved mind. I think of Romans 1. God gave them over, he says, to depravity, to this depraved mind, to the point that they misused their bodies among one another, Paul says in Romans. But that is part of their deeds. Israel had become depraved. They had gone deep into that depravity. In verse 3, we hear this often throughout Hosea's book, but they had played the harlot. They had been unfaithful to their husband who was God, to their, to their bride, as it were, to their husband. They had gone out from him and been unfaithful and, and been exercised infidelity towards the God who had devoted himself to them. So they played the harlot. Not only that, verse 4, they have a spirit of harlotry. That was striking to me this week because it's one thing to act upon that and to become that harlot in regards to their relationship with God. But he goes further and he says they have a spirit that produces that. They are harlot spirited. They are adulterers by spirit. They are compelled by their souls and the darkness of that spirit within them to be the harlot. It's almost like they are bent to be unfaithful to me. This is the deeds of Israel. This is what has provoked and brought upon them the severity of what God says here. In verse 3, he's clear as well. He says there that they have defiled themselves in all sorts of ways. I've mentioned the temple prostitution, both male and female, and this blending of this idea that somehow the God of Israel, the traditional God of Israel, was somehow linked to, to pagan ideas about God and power and nature. And, and so they just embraced all this idolatrous and despicable and perverted practices as though they were combining all things. And they had, in doing so, defiled themselves. They set themselves away from God, rather apart unto God by their actions. They had defiled themselves. Just as we have defiled ourselves with the many false gods that we have embraced as a nation and as a world. It is amazing to me to watch some of the documentaries and uh, I think I caught a clip of this recent meeting in Davos and they had someone they had called from the rainforest and they were speaking in language that I didn't understand. They were all painted up and, and polytheistic and animistic and all these things and they went around to each of the participants of the, of, the, of the conference there and they were speaking something, calling down some spirit and then they would look to each one right in their face and go, like they were blowing on them. And I was observing that and I'm thinking, 
what a perversion of that thing. I would dare not sit there and let that person do that to me for fear that they would by some way be instrumental in casting upon me some evil demonic spirit. But yet our leaders across the nation sitting there enduring that and observing that and even golf clapping it when it was concluded. And I, I thought, defilement. And this is Israel. This is Israel in that day, and, and in many cases, it is our world today. We are no less defiling ourselves with the multitude of gods and spirits that we are undiscerning about, which we carry around with us, it seems, as a people. They defiled themselves. In verse 5, I'll come back to this one, but moreover, he said, the pride of Israel testifies against it. Pride. Pride. That was their deeds that... And, and these deeds, it seems, rendered them incapable. I was writing in my notes, all these things conspired to darken the heart and the mind of Israel. They had accommodated the flesh for so long and without restraint that fleshly desires, even against sound reasoning, ascended the throne of their hearts and minds. Their deeds didn't just cause a reluctance to turn to God, their deeds and their effect rendered them incapable of that. Do you see how striking and sobering that is? What of the prophet who goes out and says to the people, repent, knowing that God says by their deeds they have been rendered incapable of doing the very thing the prophet is calling upon them to do? Is it any less, is it any less true of our generation today? We've gone so far into this darkness and this defilement that our deeds themselves have rendered us incapable, incapable of returning to God without some divine intervention. We will not do that. We will not do it. I went on to write this. They were incapable. It was inconceivable to them to act otherwise. And this statement as well. So familiar to fallen man is the way of the self, that to reject the word and mercy of God is to render himself in the default position to do what comes to him so naturally. Hear me this morning. You don't have to try to sin. You don't have to make any effort at it whatsoever. If you disregard truth and the Spirit of God and the redemption that is in Christ, you can just relax because by default you will go into your sin and you will continue to descend downward into that sin to the point of depravity because you and I are bent that way. And if you don't believe it, close your Bible this coming week. Cease your prayers Get your mind occupied in your pursuits of your career or your finances. Occupy yourself with something else and feel how depraved of a spirit you feel in seven days. I'm saying that rhetorically. Don't risk that. Don't risk it. But anytime you've had that experience, you find out very quickly how quickly your flesh takes over and you will start declining downward into the spiral of sin that takes you to the very bottom. And it has no bottom, it seems, in our world today. What perversity and what despicable thing will men not do in our generation following their sins? So their deeds 
rendered them incapable. Let me just say a word of warning to all of us individually, the church, and to our nation as a whole. Our deeds will render us the same way. Go out and speak truth today and, and see how incomprehensible it is in our generation. It's almost inconceivable to them. This can't be true. This is a bygone religious tradition from back in the days when we were superstitious people because we didn't have understanding of the universe. But now we know all this knowledge and we have all this information. We need not rely on superstitious religious impulses anymore. It's inconceivable to them in their brilliance that they ought to turn to God. They are incapable of it. And so when you and I go do evangelism, and when we go preach the gospel, we ought to go with broken hearts and on our knees preaching the gospel, understanding that the people that we are preaching to are in and of themselves incapable of responding to that without divine intervention in the heart of man to reveal the glory of God in the face of the Christ we're preaching. They're hopeless without that. They're hopeless without that. Ask the prophet Isaiah. He was sent on a mission to preach to people, having been told ahead of time that his preaching would harden the hearts of the hearers. How about that for a mission call? I'm sending you out, Isaiah, to harden the hearts of those who have already hardened their hearts. How, how do I do that, Lord? Deny them the gospel? No, preach the gospel. It'll harden the hearts of them because they are incapable of responding to it. And I have set them for judgment. And they will not respond apart from the grace of God. That's the message Hosea was speaking as well. Their deeds will not let them return to God. The other thing I think observable in this passage among all the many observable things is the issue of their pride. Notice he says in verse 5, the pride of Israel testifies against them. The pride is the testifier. The pride which really was involved in producing all the deeds and the depravity that they found themselves in. The pride was the witness on the stand as it were, against the people of Israel. If they stood up and said, no, we've not done any of those deeds. We've been good. We've honored you. Well, the, your pride is testifying against you that you are defiled. Your pride. How dangerous is pride? I'll show you this. I thought about this the other day. Can y'all can see that? That was, I stuck that there in 2004. And I listened to a preacher who preached a message and he passed out these name tags and everybody had to put them on their chest while he was preaching. And at the end of the message, he called everyone who, who, who was distraught regarding his own pride to bring that pride and lay it before the Lord. And so we all came to the altar and, and he asked us to leave those there to stick them down to the altar and walk away and leave your pride at the altar and, being the rebel I am, I took mine with me. I don't mean I took it up. I took it and I put it in my Bible. This is the same Bible I was using in 04. And I stuck it there. So that every time I opened this Bible, I would read that. Hello, my name is Pride. That's your name. That's my name. That's your name. That's who you are by default. 
So remember it. Because that's a testimony against you. And that was the testimony against Israel. What's the court? It's reality. It's creation. Romans 8, 20. That was one of the indicators against them. That though what could be known of God was made evident among them by what was made and even in them to some degree. Even though that was evident to them, they suppressed that truth and unrighteousness and refused to worship that God and worship the creation more than the Creator. And that bore witness against them of their pride. It was indicative of their fallenness. And as judgment, God turned them over. And now their pride is leading the way. Their name is pride. And it sinks them into the most horrible of depravities to the point of using their bodies in unnatural ways, men with men and women with women in ungodly ways. That's where pride leads. And their pride is their witness. Again, who is judge? God is. Verse 3, I know Israel. I know Ephraim is not hidden from me. It is their pride in that they really essentially took to themselves to direct their own lives. They pursued their sinful desires in direct contradiction to God's design and purpose for them. You know, the Bible says, y'all finish this, pride goes before a fall and a haughty spirit before destruction. Destruction and fall are both associated with the word pride and haughty spirit. My name is pride and that's my fortune. My name is pride and before me lies a fall and destruction. That's what you have to anticipate in your pride. And unless God intervenes, you will, you will fulfill your, your destiny walking in your pride. That's exactly what Israel had done. I mean, you think of all the advantages they had. Paul acknowledges that. They had the oracles. They had the revelation of God. They had the prophets. They had all this special attention of God revealing Himself and His glory through the ages. And of all people, the people who had ought to have been most humbled and not deceived in their heathen pride should have been Israel. But here they were, God's own people, those who were to testify of His own glory, swelled in their pride, defying their God, and pursuing the love of their flesh and we read this prophecy and you wonder gosh it seems as though God's severe do you think he ought not to have been had they not warranted such severity even more even without mercy yes they have warranted and so have you and I in our pride there is no vindication for human pride not of this kind so he speaks of their pride here. That pride does go before a fall, and it certainly had gone before this fall of Israel and later even Judah. A third one in verse 6 here, striking to me, was their failed search for God. He says, striking things there. He says, they will go with their flocks and herds to seek the Lord, but they will not find Him. And he even tells us why. Why? He has withdrawn from them. It was interesting in verse 5 as well. It says, They stumble more of the pride of the Israelite testifies against him. And Israel and Ephraim stumble in their iniquity. 
So when they stumble and they begin to experience the consequences of that, it seems as though they may have come under some conviction. And it says there they take their flocks and their herds and they, they go looking for God. I wondered about that. In desperation, when I'm looking for God, I'm not looking for anything to take. But Israel so entrenched in their pride when things got difficult and God withdrew, they took their flocks and their herds and they went looking for God. Why? I think it was in anticipation of finding that God, offering up appropriate sacrifices and restoring to them the fortune that they had enjoyed prior to whatever rebuke God had given them in the moment. And so still their pride is motivating them. It's driving them. We'll take something, offer up to God and bargain with Him for our peace and our prosperity. We still have something to contribute to God. But this passage here and in the Psalms as well says, what does God desire? A broken heart and a contrite spirit. These are the sacrifices of God. But they wanted to bring their lambs and their bulls and their goats. Because perhaps we can purchase by our own means uh, this mercy from God or this restoration. And that's why he says, they will come searching for me with their flocks and their herds but oh, the frustration because they will not find me. I will have withdrawn. I think the same is true in our generation today. This nation, the churches individually, we may go seeking after God when things get tough. In fact, I think there are a whole lot of people that are going to be seeking after religious things in this nation as it gets darker and darker and, and being a true Christian gets more and more dangerous and it gets oppressive and people lose their jobs and their careers and they're hungry and all these things happen. There's going to be all sorts of people going searching for God, taking along with them all the things they can contribute to him to provoke somehow a good response from him you and I have nothing to give to God you understand that right what gift can you offer that would manipulate or constrain somehow God to restore to this nation the blessings that we've enjoyed or to his church or to individuals you have nothing for which to bargain with God with nothing and so long as you go seeking after God, carrying those things that you will offer up to him, he will withdraw from you. America, American church, individual professing Christian. You take all the stuff you want to give up to God to earn somehow his merit or to earn his favor, he will withdraw from you. He's not interested in what you've got. Your possessions, your things, your great personality, your wisdom, your knowledge, your religiosity, your spirituality, you have nothing. Do you understand that today? You have nothing to offer up that can constrain him somehow to extend this mercy to you. It is a broken spirit and a contrite heart. These are the sacrifices that are acceptable to God. And I think that's because they see God for who he is. They see him for who he is. So they had this failed search for God. I just wrote this little flourish here. They go and they, they go on in their rebellion, but when the money runs out and when the crops fail, when the body is struck with disease, when the marriage fails and the family is torn apart, when 
when governments fail and war overwhelms, then they go searching for God, offering up their sacrifices, though somehow to bargain with God. So true of our generation. We go looking for God, but we go carrying all the things that we would offer up to God in exchange for some peace. And he departs from us. Verse 11 is another point I thought was significant that stood out to me. But it says in that verse that they were determined to follow man's command. You see that in verse 11, speaking of Israel. Ephraim is oppressed and crushed in judgment. Why? Because he was determined to follow man's command. They're, they're oppressed because of this. It's not a light thing. When we, when we are governed by the commands of men to the exclusion of the commands of God, it is not a light thing. It is the cause in this passage of their oppression and the judgment that they were experiencing. It is not an optional thing for you or a, or a, a light, insignificant thing for you to subject or reject the counsel of God and hear the counsel of men exclusively. It is a dangerous thing. That's what he's saying here. The word determined always strikes me when I read that because I think of that as a, as a reasoned a reasoned decision to take a certain course. It's more than just instinct. It's more than just an impression. It is the deliberate consideration of a, of a various courses and the final conclusion to take this one over these. It is a deliberate action. And he says here of Israel that they exercised in that manner to follow the commands of men. They deliberately chose that over the commands of God. That is outrageous that they would do such a thing. By darkened reason, they held the authority of man as supreme in regards to king, priest, and princes than the very counsel of God. Man's counsel was taken above that of God. And I wrote this, see how, see how greatly we rely upon the counsel of the so-called wise and scholarly of our day while the whole counsel of God lies before us in His Word. Close this, vote for the right party. Close this, get the right president. We're always thinking about the counsel of men. Go online and listen to the scholars and listen to what they say and pick which scholar you have. You know, Paul rebuked the Corinthians for that because he heard that they were saying, I'm of Apollos and I'm of Cephas and oh no, I'm of Paul, I'm of Christ. It was like he was outraged. Who are we but servants of God? There's no choosing up the scholarly man and saying, I'm of this camp and I'm of that camp. We are so prone to do that. How quickly we revert to the wise men whom we esteem to be wise in this world. But the scriptures are clear. God had chosen not many like that. So good luck finding one. And even while we do that, you have before you the eternal, infinitely wise counsel of God Almighty. Right in your hands this morning or in our generation on your phone. The counsel of God Almighty. 
And how often do we yield to the counsel and the advice of men? There are people nowadays, it amazes me, the podcast. You know, everybody's an expert on everything. You know, I mean, you can find a podcast with an expert on everything. And he's got a whole following. They even tell you how many right below it. He's got 12 million followers. He must be wise. Well, so had the witch doctor that was casting the spirits on the Davos, uh, Davos participants. So do they have a website. I don't know how you get internet service in the middle of the Amazon, but they have a following. And they're considered wise. And it just seems as though we're prone to reject the counsel of our Creator and find somebody that tickles our fancy or accommodates the desires of the fallen man and the flesh. Tell us what we want to hear. We'll be your follower. Click like. That's the generation we live in. Israel had in their own generations, to use the analogy, click like on something other than God. I was struck as well in verse 13 when it speaks of their wounds there. Verse 13, he says, When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his womb, I'm believing there that he means they recognized, I'm hurt, I've been shot, I'm bleeding, I'm, I'm sick, I'm, I'm wasting away. There's some recognition that things are not right with us. Then what did they do? Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to King Jerob. Look for some man. Look around for healing of this wound. But he says to them here to cure you of your wound. But he is unable to heal you or cure you of your wound. That's what God says to Israel through the prophet here. When you recognize that I'm wounded, that I'm bleeding, something's not right within our hearts and Israel is moving in a bad place, though we're prospering outwardly, there is a sense of something going on that is, not, not, it is foreboding and there is a wound here. What do we do? Let's go talk to the politicians. Because I think in order to stop this erosion we see in Israel, we need a new policy we need, a new, we need a new president. We need a new representative. We need to express to him our concerns and, and trust that he will make the right policies to fix things. I see that all over America today. I believe there are well-meaning Christian people that believe if we can finally get the right administration in place that it'll fix what's wrong with America. Let me say to you with all my heart, it will at best delay it, but it will not cure our wound. Because our wound is far too deeply. And God would say to us, as He said to Israel, the king of Assyria is unable to cure your wound. He's been part of the inflicting of the wound. He's incapable of healing your wounds. So is a president and so is a congress. Although we ought to vote the best we can in all of those areas. We have civic responsibility. And I'm not suggesting we withdraw and become monks. But there's only one solution to cure the wounds in the hearts of Americans and of and people across this world. There's only one cure. There's only one great physician. And that's the only one that can cure the wound that's producing the rot and the decay we see in society today. And even the perversions that churches, so-called churches, are embracing to this point. There's only one thing, one person who can cure 
such a wound as that. Though men might be instrumental in that wounding, they are not the source. Verse 14, he says, For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear to pieces and go away. I will carry away and there will be none to deliver. So in back, in back of those instruments is the God who is bringing upon a rebellious and a blasphemous, in many ways, people, his own judgment. Does that make the king innocent? No. But does that make the king superior to God in his providence and his sovereignty? Absolutely not. So the king, though he may have been instrumental in that wounding, is not the source of its healing. Ephraim, Judah, recognized their circumstances and reflectively looked to Assyria to King Jerob for a solution. I thought about this. If we assign or credit men for our comfort, our prosperity, and our success, why would we not naturally also look to them when these things are absent? It's a natural thing. Why did they go to Assyria? Why did they go to the kings of this world? Why did they do that? Because long before they went there, they were attributing their success and their prosperity to those same men. It's only natural that when it's not present, they would go to the men whom they'd already given credit for being the source of their prosperity. They denied God on both ends of it. And God says to them clearly in this very prophetic message, I produce your, make your fields produce. I bring provision for you through these means. But yet you deny me even the glory of that. So is it any wonder in that day that they turned to men for the solution? Is it any wonder in our day? How long has this country been looking to politicians and to leaders for their own success and their own prosperity and their own comfort? Why would they not now look to them in the absence of those things? We have a long tradition of rejecting God as America. And now we're reaping the whirlwind, as the scriptures say. And so it's, we shouldn't really scratch our heads and say, I wonder why that is. What could God be saying? We rejected him on the front end. Why would we turn to him on the back end? And that's exactly where Israel was, which talks again about the depth of their wound. In verse 14, as I've touched on, their wounds were inflicted by God as judgment. He says of them there that he would be lion-like towards them, Judah and Israel. He says he will tear and carry away and that none can deliver them. So God is involved in the severity of their circumstances. And that's frightening in and of itself. We're so quick to, to attribute that to somewhere else. And though there may be many instruments and means by which God brings to bear on a people to, as, a, as discipline early on, and even as severity and judgment, God may use many instruments to bring that to bear. But in back of that is a sovereign God who will not be dishonored and who will receive the glory one way or the other. Either through the putting down of an unrighteous, ungodly people or the raising up of a people who would follow Him. It's amazing to me sometimes of how much we discredit God in, in that realm we understand that he brings those. I said this many years ago, and it always makes me tremble when I think of this. But 
There's a reason why we ought to be in the Word and in prayer and earnestly seeking God and growing in our relationship with Him. And that is so that when we deviate from what is pleasing in His sight into sin, that we feel the slightest prompt of the Holy Spirit say, no, no. And we respond immediately, I know that's the Spirit of God. And I don't want to live that life. And I don't want to toy with that direction because it leads to a bad place. And we become sensitive to the Spirit's prompting. And we correct course, trusting in His grace and His mercy to do so. But after a while, we start hardening ourselves to that. We tolerate a little here. We quench the, pr the pricking of the Spirit here. We kind of ignore it over there. Not a big deal. I'll keep an eye on that one. And we keep diminishing it in some way and all the while we're dulling our sensitivity to the Spirit. And then we go on along that trail and then the Lord brings something more abrupt. Bang! Brings it into your life. Attention getter. And we might respond then, but, but then after a while, if He doesn't lift those circumstances and things get better, we start to get even more hard in that. And we deceive ourselves into thinking, well, that's unrelated. Some things just happen in life. It has nothing to do with the way I'm living my life. And so we detach circumstances from the way we're living our lives. And we further darken our sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. And then somewhere way down the line, we have hardened ourselves to the point that if we indeed belong to God, the severity of what He brings into our life must be extreme to produce the affliction that He's going to talk about in the next point here. And to me, just as a word of caution for myself and for all of us as believers, beware of desensitizing ourselves to the prompting and the pricking of the Holy Spirit when we sin because that is a dangerous course to set oneself upon. And don't think that if you belong to God and you truly are His, that He will spare any severity to bring you back to Himself. Because His priority is not your comfort in this life. His priority is your redemption for eternity. And if the cost of that is your flesh then we would be like Paul who turned over one for the destruction of the flesh so that his soul might be saved. And God will literally destroy our flesh as a, as a means, if necessary, to restore our souls or to keep our souls to himself. Really quickly, I know my time's gone. might come back to these. But in verse 15, Another thing that stood out is that their guilt must be realized. In verse 15, he says, I will go away and return to my place. This is such a sad, tragic feeling verse. I will go away and return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. Leave your flocks, leave your herds and your sheep behind. Acknowledge now that you stand guilty before God Almighty who sees every motivation, every inclinations of the heart and every action proceeding from such a corrupt heart. Acknowledge in that moment your guilt and seek my face. That's the contrite spirit. That's the broken heart. The only qualifications given for those who would seek God and actually find him because he says, I'm going away to my place. 
You're going to keep bringing your sheep and your cows, and you're going to keep trying to appease me and fix the circumstances in your life, and they're just going to get worse and worse and worse, and the severity is going to get greater and greater and greater. And finally, out of this affliction that comes so unbearable to you, you will finally leave your sheep and your flocks at home, and you will come to me with broken heart, acknowledging, recognizing that you have indeed sinned against the God who brought you into existence and the God in whose son gave his life for your redemption. In their affliction, he says, they will earnestly seek me. Notice finally here in verse 15, the instrument of earnest seeking is affliction. Is affliction. That's frightening to me, uh, but it's also illuminating to me in that affliction does what? It presses out any self-reliance Reliance upon strength, intellect, all those things. Affliction squishes out of us every ounce of self-reliance. Every bit of it. Affliction, whether it be light for some momentary purpose that God is using in sanctification to open our eyes or whether it's way down the trail somewhere and is extreme, even a nation going into judgment and into captivity to another nation, even in, even in the atrocities that are committed against that nation, the, the affliction itself then becomes an instrument to produce this earnesty in seeking God. I would prefer much rather to pray for it to seek God for it. Oh, Lord, make my pursuit of you earnest. And Lord, if, if there is affliction that is necessary to produce that, Lord, grant me grace to endure it and let it have its perfect end in me. Let, as Piper says in one phrase years ago, don't let me waste my cancer. Don't let me waste the affliction in my life and become bitter, embittered by it. But let it have its perfect work in me and press out of me self-reliance and produce in me this earnest seeking which will be rewarded with your self-revelation to me and my sustained hope even in the midst of that affliction. God often lifts that affliction once that guilt has been understood and he's brought you back into fellowship. But it may be an affliction that takes you all the way to the end of your days. But for the believer, when the affliction has accomplished its purpose in this life, he will bring us into his own presence. So there is hope for Israel. But it is not a hope that the Israelites had grown accustomed to waiting on. It was a severe hope as a message title. Their affliction is by design. And only by a gracious God could that designed affliction produce uh, these followers of God. And the same thing is true in our lives as well. Stand with them this morning. I never know what the Holy Spirit prompts in the heart of those who hear each Sunday and Wednesday. But you may be here this morning and you know exactly what he's brought to mind and brought to the forefront of your own thoughts um, our appeal as a church and as brothers and sisters is always the same. Be responsive to that. Uh, turn to him. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, as frightening as it is to think of these things and to think of affliction, and it's even more sobering to understand that even the slightest sin uh, would warrant 
the most severe of afflictions if we viewed that sin in light of your infinite holiness. So Father, I thank you that today many of us are standing here in good health in relatively comfortable times without affliction. But Father, I pray that we would not be deceived to think that this is concluding therefore that we have no sin. We are just as prone to return to the sin of the past and the sin of the flesh as those Israelites were. So, Father, we thank you for grace that guards us from such a fall. And so, Father, I pray that in these moments of consideration and contemplation of your word and your truth, Lord, that you might speak to the hearts of those who are here, move our hearts to respond in obedience to what you've called us to do and who you've called us to be. We ask these things for Christ's sake and for in his name and for his glory. Amen.